This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Backpacking Podcast. This is John Kelly here with Jeremiah Stringer, the king of Kentucky backpacking. And we are here today to bring you the greatest podcast in the history of backpacking <laughs> the podcast that changed the game the podcast that quite literally uh we save lives yeah i don't know how maybe episodes like this where we talk about uh, being scared scared <laughs> speaking two. of being scared so yep. yesterday I, I i'm in my truck and i'm on my way to work yeah and i get to a stoplight and when i stop also my truck jerks Whole thing starts shaking, and I'm like, "What is going on?" And all of a sudden, this like warning thing came up, and it said, uh, "Stabila track disabled." Oh. And then it said, uh, "Traction control disabled." And then it said, "Engine power reduced." Guess how fast I could drive that after that? <laughs> how fast? Fifteen miles an hour. <laughs> so I, I I pull off the side of the road for a second because mm-hmm. it's it's morning. Like people are there's a lot of cars on the road, and I get on Route 27 here and. Uh, in Kentucky, and that's a pretty busy road in, yeah. in central Kentucky. So I pull over, I call my wife and tell her what's going on. I said, I'm going to limp home. Mm. It's like less than a mile from my house, thank goodness. Um, but so I'm going to limp home and figure out what's going on. So I, I get into the lane, and I've, I've got my hazard lights on at this point, obviously. So I make a U-turn, come back to the house, park it. Get online, read all this stuff about what's going on. I'm getting 50 different things as to what could be the problem. Mm-hmm. But then I read something that says, hey, yeah, I, that happened to me. I let my car sit for 15 minutes, went and started it, was fine for the next couple of weeks, and then I had to figure out what to, how to fix it after that. Mm. Okay, so I let my car rest, you know, obviously, almost a half hour at that point. And so I uh, jumped in the truck. I was like, cool. So I drove it to work. Well, about 40 minutes down the road, it does it again. Luckily, I was right by an orchard. I think it's Boyd's Orchard, I think is the name of the place. Mm. Pulled in and... Uh, Sat and listened to the radio for a little bit and let the car sit and chill and started it back up, <laughs> drove it to the to the church and, and as I'm pulling into the parking lot, it does it again. So I just park the truck, turn it off. <laughs> your back I'm pocket at work. start. Hurting. I'm now I'm now like an hour from from home, right? Yeah. So I pull in and I, I go to work. Well, later on that that day, I look at my at one of the guys and I go, Hey, I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go into town. I'm gonna go to AutoZone or Advance or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get them to run the computer and see what's going on. Yeah. Because I knew it had to be electrical at that point because if it was mechanical, it would have never started back up. It would have been a sure. big problem. So I was like, okay, it's electrical, probably a sensor somewhere, whatever. So I go in, go to Advanced Auto first. Mm-hmm. They run the computer. Sure enough, it's this uh, uh, throttle position sensor, mm-hmm. TPS sensor is what they called it. 
Okay, cool. We don't have any. Oh. Okay. So and I'm like, well, let me go check something on it. I'll come back in. Well, I come back in. The guy I was working with is gone. And uh, and a guy goes, did somebody help you? He said, yeah, what's his face? Well, he's, oh, okay, good. And he walks off. <laughs> just left you there? So I'm just standing there. No help. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what? What? So I left. <laughs> like, what else could you do? I went to AutoZone and they had the part and I got the part. And, you know, sometimes these places they'll put in batteries and they'll do stuff. And I asked them, I said, well, you put something in like this. It's like right on the front of the, the engine. Mm. And they're like, oh, no, no, we don't even barely change batteries anymore. Yeah. Some I don't feel like we'll even hook up and check your battery yeah, anymore. Yeah, it's crazy. So I was like, OK, that's fine. I've got tools at my in my office. So I jumped back in the truck, drove home. Luckily, it didn't stall out or anything at any point. Mm-hmm. Go back to the house, or go back to the to the church where I was working. Luckily, it was like fifty something degrees outside. Yeah. So I was out there in a short sleeve shirt working on this truck, yeah. and was able to like <laughs> take the front part of the take it apart, put everything back in, put it together, and it's running fine. But can you imagine being an hour away from home, and you're terrified that you won't be able to drive faster than fifteen miles an hour? Yeah, dude. It that. Same issue happened with me and my truck. Yeah. And we have basically the same truck. Yeah. And Bridget, I was having her to take it to a mechanic, actually, in our hometown. Yeah. And it's it's done the exact same thing while she was getting into town, like right to the city limits. And she had to limp it all over. Yeah. And it wasn't a throttle position sensor on mine. It was something else. But, yeah, my, my back pocket starts hurting. As soon as I start seeing those, every every light that comes on the dash, right? It, it's a multiplier for me in the wallet. Well, and here's the thing, and I would tell anybody this. I would tell anybody this. If you can learn how to work on your car, do it. Yeah. Uh, I, it cost me $57 to fix my car. I was going to ask how much that part was. $57. If I'd have taken, I called a dealership and asked them, I said, if you, if you guys would put this in, how much it cost? 350 bucks. Yeah, they charge usually $75 to $100 an hour for labor. Yeah, and sometimes they just charge you a base rate on what it should take them to do it, mm-hmm. which drives me nuts because if it only takes them 30 minutes to do it, but it says it's a three-hour job, mm-hmm. you still have to pay for three hours. Yeah, that is pretty wild. And, yeah. you know, I was talking to one guy because my truck's getting worked on. Right. And I said, how, how much, if, if we think that this is the problem, and you were to diagnose it and fix it. I said, how long do you think it would take you? And he's like, I don't really know how long. I said, well, how much would you charge if this, you know, if you were fixing it? Right. He said, probably about $150. And I finally asked, I finally got it out of him how long it would take. He said, mm, if everything went okay, maybe five to six hours. And I was like, that is a steal. That's a if, steal. If you actually knew what you were doing and could save the, you know, had the time and save that much money. Gosh. Well, that was my whole thing. I was like, I don't want to spend 350 bucks. I can no. buy the part and put it in myself. I mean, and here's the thing, folks. If you're watching this right now, mm-hmm. you already know what to do. Watch YouTube. <laughs> yeah, you can find anything on YouTube. I mean, seriously, that's how do you think I fixed that? I watched a guy fix it on YouTube. You know, I was in high school and I bought this, or maybe it was college. I bought this book called... Um, Car Repairs for Dummies. Have you ever heard of the For yeah, Dummies series? Yeah, yeah, Used to be the the biggest thing, I felt like, and then Google came along. But before, if you want to learn guitar, you could buy the book, Guitar for Dummies. You could, yeah. You could buy it for anything. So I had it for vehicles. And I read through the whole thing, 
and learn some like minor things that you can do to save yourself money, like changing your own brake pads or yeah. changing your own oil. Now, some people, and I'm sure at some age, I'll be at the same same spot where I say, you know what, my body doesn't feel like doing this, and I have enough money to just say, here, you take care of it. But for right now, let me tell you this. I bought oil, and I bought a filter. And I called around and asked, how much would it cost if y'all changed my oil? And, you know, I asked different dealerships and stuff. And they gave me a price. And it was like $12 more if you brought your own oil and filter. So I assumed that they have some kind of like... uh, you know, they buy it in bulk. Oh, yeah, and they're making they buy money. In bulk, yeah. Yeah. And then, I don't know, maybe they're getting paid to recycle or something. But sometimes it'll cost you more money. It, it was costing me less money to have them to change it than it was for me to just buy the oil and do it myself. So I don't know. Sometimes and Unless that you line use like there. a Valvoline oil change. Yeah, I don't know if I trust them. Do you Those, trust them? I, I, used, I used to use them all the time. And then I started doing a price run because it's, it's quick. You just drive in, mm-hmm. you pull in, you pull right in. They do it right there. You go home. Yeah. 15 Pretty easy. minutes, you're out the door. Yeah, as long as it's not busy that day. Mm-hmm. You know, at the most, a half hour. But you're not, you don't have to schedule it. Mm-hmm. You just drive there and get an oil change. Um, but the problem is, <laughs> they charge you more. Because they've got four guys working on your one oil change. Yeah. I don't know. I know that uh, I worked at Walmart for years. and You worked at Walmart? For years, man. You wore the blue apron? I wore... It wasn't an apron, it's a vest. Sorry. I thought <laughs> I, it worked at the deli. I thought... <laughs> you worked at the deli. I, I, I think of Lowe's with the vest, but I guess I guess Walmart does vests, too. Yeah, the Navy. They have the Navy vest. Yeah, yeah I worked... You had a smiley face on your face? Or on your uh, vest? Oh, well, I did not have a smiley face on my face working there. I'll tell you that. You don't smile much working there, huh? <laughs> no, it was okay. I worked in Garden Center. I worked in the back. Right. I'll tell you this, though. One of the worst things about working at one of these major corporations is if you are responsible and competent, you get all the responsibility with none of the pay. Oh, I know. I know. They want to give you a key to everything. They want to teach you how to drive this, how to use that. And then they want you to be in the chain of command. They want you ordering people around. But in the meantime, you don't have the title. You don't have the money. So how are you going to... And if you turn it down, you won't get the hours. Yeah. Because you'll be punished. You'll be punished for not taking it. But you don't get rewarded for taking it. Yeah, that is totally ridiculous. But after seeing some of the people that I worked with, like some of the mistakes, like forgetting to put, you know, <laughs> something something back in the vehicle, something as simple as like uh, putting the filter back on, the oil filter, like putting a new one on. or Right. Or putting <laughs> it on crooked and, and just forcing it on instead of pulling it out, making sure it's in seated correctly and then turning it on. We had a guy didn't replace the oil plug and the car <laughs> I mean it has no oil in it because it's all going to drain out as you're refilling it. I don't know I don't just don't understand. So anyway, they 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 had to take this like blue marker or pen or whatever and like put their initials under there on the oil pan so that they know the last person that changed it. I guess for some accountability. Yeah. But I'm talking about things like the company can't afford to get <laughs> sued for every engine that blows up because they didn't have any oil in their car. They, they make you test drive around after changing the tires because at one point somebody didn't put all the lug nuts back on and one of the tires come off. I mean, so I don't know about these big box stores, them fixing anything on my vehicle, but I tell you that that um, car repairs for dummies, 
mm-hmm. teaching you some basic stuff was a game changer for me. I remember I was in college and I, I didn't have hardly any tools. I bought a $20 tool set at Walmart, like the crappy tools. Yeah. Bottom of the barrel. Parked on the sidewalk, like a tire on the sidewalk at our uh, college, like dorm style living place. And crawled up under there and took the old starter off my Ranger and put a new one on. Bare minimum. Man, when I was in college, <laughs> the I, had, we do. I had a, pl- a 91, <laughs> 91 Plymouth Acclaim. Uh-huh. I probably put 15 serpentine belts on that thing. Oh, my God. Because it just shredded them. Like, it, would, it, was, it was all the time. It was just, I couldn't afford to get the, the problem fixed. Yeah. Because I was a college student. I had no money. You're treating the symptoms. <laughs> so I just had like, I would keep five or six serpentine belts in my car at all times. And so when like a month or two down the road, when one shredded, yeah, I could just pull off the side of the road, get out another one, put it in and let's go. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> it, but the truth is, I mean, imagine how much money you can save being able to do your own car repairs. Yeah. To a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah, so we're talking about fears. Yeah. I was a little afraid yesterday. All that to come back to the truck yesterday morning, driving t- well, 15 miles an hour on a 55-mile-an-hour road. For uh, I was a little afraid. I totally get it. For the people that uh, missed last week's episode, I'll give you a quick recap. Uh, we basically talked about stuff that you uh, could be scared of in the mm-hmm. woods. And one was getting lost. Another was of other people running out of food or water and just not stimulated being bored, you know, maybe stuck in your tent in the rain or something like that. And we had a few others that I wanted to talk about today. Oh, let's go. Okay. I'm ready. Let's do it, man. All right. So one, this is called cryophobia. Have you heard of this? Cryo? Are you afraid of like being frozen? Bingo! You nailed it, bro. How'd you really? know cryophobia? Well, I mean, you got cryo chambers. Yeah, right. And that's they freeze you literally, mm-hmm. like, and it's supposed to be healing for your body or something. What the heck is cryophobia? Well, phobia meaning afraid of. So, so you nailed it. Afraid of getting You're cold. Afraid of freezing to death. It's called cryophobia. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know. I really didn't know that existed. This is a real fear. Now, for us living in Kentucky, like. I mean, I can go backpacking. It usually doesn't get colder than the teens. Very rarely does it ever get down to the single digits. No. So as long as you are, you know, remotely prepared with your proper gear, Mm -hmm. where we live, you're probably not going to freeze to death. No. I will say living in Kenosha, Wisconsin for four years, there was one winter where the temperatures were below zero for 10 straight days. Yeah. So if you got stuck outside, you'd be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. The cryophobia might be kicking in. It's bad. Um, Real bad. I'll tell you, though, isn't it true that most people that die of hypothermia, it's not because they're in like some frozen, it's not, they're not on Hoth, right? They're <laughs> on Hoth. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? It's not some frozen. I just tundra. love that you used the Star Wars <laughs> quote right there. That's well, great. You're a Star Wars guy, right? I'm a Star Wars guy. Yeah. yeah. So I think that it's more of the. They're cold and wet, and it might be in the 50s out there, but you can still get hypothermia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm talking more of the you're not adequately prepared. All right. And people think that 
freezing to death. They they have this fear whenever they're about to go backpacking that I'm going to be cold, which that might be a legitimate fear. Yeah. But I think that even if people are afraid that they're going to freeze to death, still get out there and go, and you don't have to be afraid that your sleeping bag isn't going to let you freeze to death. Because well, you might be uncomfortable. Yeah. You're probably not going to die. Do research. I went, to, I went to Kilimanjaro back in 2016. We've talked about it on this channel before. But one of the things I did was I knew that when we got up to 16,000 feet mm-hmm. to camp for the, the, the summit day, I knew the temperatures were going to be cold, like really cold, close to zero. Mm-hmm. So I did some research, and I found gear that would keep me warm in that, in that weather. So if you're, if you're afraid of being cold, do the research. Find the gear that's going to get you there. Don't be afraid to carry extra weight. Everybody who backpacks knows that wintertime, your pack's going to be heavier because you got to stay warm. Mm-hmm. And warm, the warmer the gear, the heavier the gear. And, and so it's just normal. Even tents. If you're going to get a four-season tent, five to seven pounds is not weird. Yeah, it's going to be heavier because it has to be, it's basically rated and tested for those like more severe weather conditions. Yeah. Having snow on top of it and it not collapsing, having higher right. winds and having, you know, the guy lines actually tied out. Stephen Smith just did a fantastic video on this. Um, My Life Outdoors, if you are on YouTube at all and you want to watch it, where he talks about the difference between a three season, a four, a three and a half season and a four season tent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what makes them different and why, if you're going to be in an area with heavy snowfall and drifts and wind and all that, why a four season tent is so important and it does make a difference. But again, I come back to do your research. Mm-hmm. Like y- if you don't want to be afraid, it's amazing how much comfort you get when you know you got the right gear. Yeah. Like I don't, I never worry about sleeping cold in my hammock. Yeah, not only is your mind comfortable, but your body is also comfortable. Right. I went to Pennsylvania a few years ago and backpacked with Ben McMillan mm-hmm. and some other guys, just some awesome, some awesome guys. And while we were out there, I knew that we were going to get freezing rain and snow. Mm-hmm. So I didn't bring a Dyneema tarp with me <laughs> for my hammock. Yeah. It's not big enough. I brought my UGQ heavy duty winter dream tarp, which is massive where I can, I literally, it's like a big tent for my hammock. And my uh, my tarp was only the, the the bottom of it was only maybe I want to say like six inches off the ground, mm-hmm. so I was completely covered up. And any snow that came, all I had to do was tap the top of the tarp, and it just knocked it off. You doors on either side, and I was protected from getting wet. And I stayed warmer because all that heat was able to be trapped inside the the tarp with me. Sure. And I also, I mean, zero degree quilts don't help don't hurt you know so i was able to stay plenty warm i didn't freeze that night woke up the next day and looked under my my tarp and sure enough there's like five or six inches of snow outside that wasn't there when i went to bed that night you know so but i did the research and i wasn't worried you know it's when you don't do the research and you wing it Mm -hmm. that's dangerous and so i think if you don't want to be afraid do your research yeah i think that you're right like with dealing with most of these fears, the number one way you can combat it and be successful and actually get out there and have a good time is the preparation. Yeah, it's all about preparation. I think it's with anything, though. I mean, mm-hmm. why do we go to college? And you got to prepare. It prepares for us for our career. Mm-hmm. You know, like everything you do has to have preparation. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
if you're dealing with hemorrhoids, it's preparation H, you know? So, I mean, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. I mean, preparation, <laughs> preparation's everything guys. It's everything. Now I got comments in the past because I suggest using hot hands and I always get the, I always get the comment, Jeremiah, you shouldn't be suggesting, this is a dangerous suggestion out here using hot hands. You're, you're making people think that they need to use hot hands and, uh, that's their main form of, staying warm i want to make it as obvious as possible hot hands and stuff like that like one episode i showed uh, a hand warmer that i have that stuff is in addition to what you're saying right it's for like let me elevate my comfort if i wake if if i wake up in the morning and i make some coffee and you know i'm i'm moving around and my hands are getting cold and then i want to pop a couple hot hands right that's for comfort exactly it's not well, I don't need to bring six packs of hot hands and the wrong rated temperature for my sleeping bag and yeah. then strategically place those. Well, it's it's an overused statement now in backpacking, but hike your own hike. I mean, it's like, you know what? If you want to live in the land of comfort, mm-hmm. you live in that land. You own that land. That is your land. I will not trespass on your land. But if I want to hike light and that stuff doesn't matter to me, don't trespass on my land either. Yeah. The problem is everybody sees what they do and they just want to tell everybody that what they do is right. Yeah. And that, that's the only way to do it. That's what I do on my YouTube channel. I know. So if you want to know the right way. You go to Jeremiah's channel. <laughs> yeah. And then when you realize like how jacked up he is, you go to My Life Outdoors and you check out Stephen Smith. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hear the true truth. Okay. I got one more thing on the on the cold situation. Okay. Get warm before you crawl into your sleep. Yeah. Bag. Even if it means doing some jumping jacks. Like right now, we're in the winter, you know? So don't go to bed cold because your body has to work that much harder to heat back up. Yep. Pee before you go to bed. Do some jumping jacks, you know? Whatever you got to do to get warm. My biggest struggle in cold weather is my feet get cold. You know, what do you do to combat that? The only thing you can do, you have to walk around. You get the blood flowing in your feet again. Yeah. But if I sit by the campfire, the fire is not really going to warm up my feet. Yeah, and you ever melt your shoes? I have not, but I've watched okay. other people. I watched Jason Wish do it when we were backpacking with him. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've done it multiple times. But but yeah, I, I've for me personally, I've I've learned that putting my feet around a campfire, it's only warm while the fire's near it. Mm-hmm. But the moment I pull my feet away, they get cold yeah. because it's not necessarily increasing the blood flow to my feet. Right. So I have to walk around a little bit, or I just have to know that for the first 20 minutes that I'm in my tent or hammock or whatever, my feet are just going to be cold. Mm-hmm. They'll eventually warm up. So things like hot hands and stuff like that are actually really good for someone like me who just has cold feet. Mm-hmm. Because once once you get the uh, the down warmed up, yeah, then your feet will warm up. Yeah, but the problem is it. your down's cold, your feet are cold. Neither mm-hmm. one's warming each other up, so it takes longer. Yeah. And so you know, Suge, he he put this out in a video a long time ago. Suge Emery, zip your puffy jacket up and put it around your feet. Yeah. And that adds an extra insulation layer. But if they're warm going in, it's so much easier. So much easier. Yeah. And I do want to say, I want to put this out there. Down is not warm. Your body is warm. Yeah. The down traps that heat around you to keep you warm is it the air it warms up the air it's an insulation yeah it's it's insulation that warm air is trapped inside the down yeah and it warms everything else up i guess through is it convection 
Sure. Convection, conduction, radiation. Aren't those the only three forms of... Isn't it radiation? It's radiating off your body and then the... No, I think... It's it's insulating that heat around you? No, I think radiation is only from like direct open sources, like the sun or like your... your fire in your house. All I know like is if something's blocking it, yeah. then the radiation doesn't have a direct like it has to be line of sight for you to get the energy. Okay. I and got Conduction you. would be touching. And I think convection would be the air, right? Like a convection oven, the air heats. Yeah, I guess so. And you know, it rises, then it cools yeah. and falls back down and gets heated again with the element. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing. It this is why a lot of people will take um boiling water and put it in an algae bottle and throw it in the foot of their hammock or mm-hmm. the foot of their their uh sleeping bag or quilt or whatever it is they're sleeping in. It's to heat the down up so that that's already warm when you get your feet in it. Mm-hmm. Cuz the down itself is not warm. Like it's just not. It's just as cold as everything else. Yeah. But the thing is, it's got insulation qualities that allow your feet to get to stay warm if they're already warm. Mhm. But it won't warm your body up. Yeah. That's that, a big misunderstanding by a lot of people. I totally agree. And you mentioned the Nalgene. Do a leak test on that one before, oh, you, yeah. <laughs> before you toss it in yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. You're right about double that. Double check the leak. You know, I never do it because I'm afraid of that. You want to talk about fears? Yep. I fear my stuff getting wet. You're talking about like your down and insulation? Down, right? insulation, the inside of my tent, whatever. I don't like my stuff being wet. Mm-hmm. Because I've... I guess it's I guess it's PTSD from the Shell Toey Trace because I had so many things destroyed by rain mm-hmm. on that hike. So I, I, I definitely don't like it when my stuff gets wet. So I've never actually done that, but I know a lot of people who have. And I think you've you've done that before, haven't you? Yeah. Or you yeah. can use your pee bottle. You can use the pee bottle. After you pee in it, you can hug it for a nice warm pee hug. That just sounds so bad. Do a leak test. Yeah, maybe um, maybe an even more. Some would argue an even more leaked, uh, important leak test than with the Nalgene and boiled water. You know, yeah. some people would argue that it's an important leak test. Folks, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. Pee. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Pee. Pee in a bottle, and then hug it. I apologize. Put it wherever you want. You could put it. You can put it back where your bladder peed it out and warm that area back up. See, this is the point that if this was just a video, we'd zoom in on my face right now. <laughs> and you just hear me inside my head going, na, 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 not listening, na, 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 na. That, that's what I'd be doing right now. Um, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. I'm sorry. All right, let's go on to the next one. <laughs> the next one. So this is something that uh, I feel like it really hits home with my wife. Oh, really? The dark. Really? Yeah, she doesn't. She she wants to make sure we have a campfire first of all. Always have a campfire, and then when we go to bed, it's pitch black. You know, you're inside a tent, and it's just the two of you. And she's not out in the woods as much as me. There's sounds outside. Right, right. You might hear a squirrel, but it actually sounds like a a wolverine or a bear about to rip your face off, or you know, Hugh Jackman. A Wolverine. <laughs> yeah. Hugh Jackman wandering around out yeah, in the woods. Man. So it's gonna get you with those knifey fingers of his. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> uh, so what what would you say to people that are scared of the dark? How do you how do you deal with that? I feel like it's less of scared of the dark and more of what's in the dark, the unknown. I guess bring a headlamp. 
Well, you're um, gonna have a headlamp anyway, right? You know, I know a lot of a lot of times now, like watches that people wear. Like I'm wearing an Apple Watch right now. I think you're mm-hmm. wearing a Garmin watch. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of I don't know if Garmin does this, but the Apple Watch, if, as it's charging at night, if it sits sideways, it'll make a clock. And your iPhone will do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I, I think Galaxy will do that. Um, but you just set your phone sideways, you have that nice little alarm clock sitting in front it's of you like all night. An ambient light. Yeah, so it gives a little bit of ambient light, so it's not completely pitch black. That mm-hmm. could be helpful. Um, I know that there are items you can get that as long as they're in the sun all day, they'll glow pretty much most of the night. So you got a little oh. bit of ambient light that way. Um, I, I'm not afraid of the dark, so I just it, it's one of those things. I think we all were when we were small children, probably. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's all I can think of on I that think one. Night light is good. Like, if you yeah. have one of those pumps, a lot of times there's a little little yep. light that you can, it's like one lumen, so it doesn't keep you awake. Yeah. And I'll tell you a little hack that I've done is whenever you're using your headlamp or a light that's too bright as a night light and you're going to leave it on all night, it, like we have a gear loft in the tent that we take mm-hmm. that's just the two of us. Right. And you can like stick a T-shirt up there, and then stick the nightlight in it, and cover it basically almost all the way up, like ninety nine point five percent up, and then you just get a tiny little ambient light. So if it's too much light, just block a little bit of it. Well, one of the things I do, um, and it's not because of fear of the dark; it's just that I don't want to have to hunt for my headlamp. I wear my headlamp around my neck when I sleep yeah. at night, and that way, when I wake up, I'm not feeling around in the dark trying to find like if I have to go to the bathroom or something mm-hmm. I'm not feeling around looking for it it's right here I already know where it's at bring it up turn it on I've got light immediately or if I hear something I just want to turn the light on and see what's going on yeah it's right there and I can control it holding with my hands but um I actually got that from uh Rice Newbold I think that's where I figured where I learned that from yeah I try um, to do that too but sometimes it I feel like it's kind of in the way I think it just depends on what kind of band you have yeah I got a shock cord on mine yeah, that would drive me nuts. Yeah. I've actually got a, it's it's a black diamond band, mm-hmm. but it's a nightcore headlamp. Oh, you rigged it up. Yeah, the black diamond band was actually almost as light as shot cord. So I was like, well, I'm gonna use the black diamond band because it's way more comfortable than shot cord. <laughs> we need a Graham Weenie button. I know, I right? Press. I like, know. Every time there's like we do a Graham Weenie thing. Oh man, but I will tell you. Okay, <laughs> maybe we should talk about Graham Weenies being a, a scared of stuff too, but. Um, as I'm getting older, I'm realizing the value of lighter weight gear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so yeah, so I've, I actually do that with some of my gear. I don't go crazy. I don't like clip off tags and do you cut off the end stuff. of the straps? No, I don't do that. You don't that. do that? No, I don't oh, do that. I don't either. I'm like, ah, well, let me tell I'm you. I'm always afraid if I cut them, they're going to fray and then I got a bigger mess to deal with. Yeah. Or you cut them too short and now you can only loosen your backpack up so much. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you loosen it up too much, it just it pops like, loose. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's, that's kind not... of a fear for me. One other thing on the dark before uh, I do one more is I think a standard piece of gear on every tent and hammock should be glow in the dark at the very least zipper pulls at the very least. Yeah. Why is that not already? We need to, we need legislation worldwide passing a law. Every single zipper pull has to have glow in the dark or at least reflective. I'm going to push toward the glow in the dark. If we have to settle on at least reflective. But here's the problem with glow in the dark. If you if you don't get to camp early enough that there's sunlight on those, there's not going to be any sunlight on them all day. 
Oh, we're gonna so, need new technology then. You get what I'm saying though? You're yeah, not you're gonna, they're not gonna they're not gonna get a lot of sunlight to make them glow for yeah, very it's long. It's gotta absorb some sunlight. Yeah. To so make I mean it glow. and most mm. of the time when you're camping, you're camping under trees. Unless you're out west and you're on a mountain or something. But for a mm. lot of us, we're in the green tunnel. So when we camp, there's not much sunlight getting to your tent. So the, I don't know that glow in the dark's really gonna help a ton. I think it is. I think that it's almost always gonna glow in the dark. I mean you could take your hand headlamp and just Sit there and hold it on the zipper pull for like five minutes, and then it should glow for a while. Will artificial light make stuff glow oh, like yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Hmm. It's bright enough. I never have researched how glow in the dark really works, so I don't know the science behind how it's absorbing the light to make it glow. Yeah, I, I think I think at the least, though, it should be reflective. And it's amazing how many tent makers don't even do reflective guy lines. There yeah, is dude. nothing worse than at night like I've gone to a lot of like YouTuber meetups and stuff. Man, I can't tell you how many guy lines I've tripped over because <laughs> yeah. everything's so crowded because there's so many tents and hammocks yeah. and, and and they didn't use reflective guy lines. And I'm like going, it's dark. Yeah, you're tripping. You've got over black it. guy line. Why do you have black guy line with no reflection? <laughs> yeah. Like you're waking up some stranger in his hammock because his tarp just goes. Or you pull the, Or you pull the. The tent stake completely out of the ground and their thing collapsed because oh, they yeah their shelter just falls in. And you're sitting there going, "Well, dummy, you have black guy line with no reflection to well, it." Well, whose fault is it? The user, the consumer, or is it your fault, or is it the tent maker's fault? Are you going to place the blame on the? Tent I'm blaming maker? it on the person who bought it and the tent maker. Oh, so you're totally not at fault. It's three in the morning. I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> And I've got a headlamp on. I still can't see it because it's black. Yeah, touche. That's, that's on them. That's not on me. I'm not taking blame for that one, Jeremiah. You can't put that kind of evil on me. All right, you ready for the last one? Oh, it isn't the last one. Oh, it's your last one. Oh, you got some as well. I have well. one for you. Okay, yes. all right. One to finish all this right. out, yeah. All right, well, my last one is wild animals. And I put on my list the go-to that people are going to say are bear. Yeah. Or bears. I still don't know if it's bear or bears. I think it's bears with an S. Mm -hmm. Boars. Well, that'd be down south. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also have coyotes or wolves, which I'm not really super scared of coyotes, but, you know, could be in a bad position. And then one that I think is underrated that we don't talk about enough, moose. Moose are ferocious, but I also put any type of like deer. Could be moose, could be. Uh, well, elk, I've had I've had a deer. deer right up to my tarp in my hammock once, dude. I've seen and it snorted and it scared the fire out of me because I didn't know what it was at first. Oh yeah, and deer, dude, a buck in in during like while they're all in heat during rut. Yeah, they yeah that can be really dangerous. I've seen like yeah. videos of people fighting deer, like holding the antlers and. You know, I think the probability is probably low of running into any of that stuff well, in the, the woods. The fear but... you run is if you scare them, they'll tear your tarp up. You're talking about the deer. Yeah, with with their antlers. Yeah, they will tear your tarp up well, or how... your or your tent if they if they're if they're threatened if they feel threatened. Like if you happen to go, hey, and, and they jump, them. they could. You know, you never know. I don't know. You know the one animal you should add to that. Yeah. That they should be afraid of because it, it does more damage to more people's gear than any of those ever will. What is it? Mice. Oh, mice. Yeah, and you know what? A lot of people are afraid of mice. Yeah, a lot of people are, but I will tell you, mice will probably end up doing more damage to your backpacking gear over the course. Mm -hmm. Rodents in general. Let's put yeah, rodents. rodents because... Because you've got marmots, too, that yeah, are out west. And honestly, even, even like porcupines. People don't know yeah. this, but like there's a lot of places where porcupines, they'll, they'll go after anything salty. And I know, I know several guys who've had the core candles 
on their trekking poles, and they had trekking oh, pole tents. They chew them up. And they chewed up all the cork off of their handles. Yeah, and the porcupines, I seen a picture on Facebook earlier today that this guy, he was like trying to scare off a cat or something with his foot, and it was a porcupine. Yeah, that's a rude, rude awakening. Oh, huh? man. Yeah, that's terrible. But rodents in general, you're going to find over the course of your lifetime as a backpacker, rodents going to be more of a problem for you than anything they, else. They chew through your tent. They chew through anything that smells like food. Even if you have like an old wrapper left in your water bottle pocket or something, you yeah. just like tucked in your backpack on the move and didn't, you know, I'll get it later. And then, right. you, then you forget to throw it away or whatever. And they smell that, the salty or whatever it was. Right, right. They'll chew a hole right through it. Oh, yeah. 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 They got really sharp teeth. I mean, here's the thing. Mice can get into the smallest little spaces. Yeah. We actually had a mouse infestation in this house a few years ago. Mm. We had to bring in Terminix, and we had to take all of the insulation out of our attic. They had to vacuum up everything mm. up there, clean that all out. And then uh, they had to come back in, spray a bunch of anti-mouse whatever, then put down treated insulation back, went through the whole house, Anywhere where they saw any crack or opening in the foundation, anywhere in this house, mm-hmm. it got sealed up. They even replaced the weather stripping on the bottom of our garage door mm-hmm. because mice, I mean, they're determined. They're 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 gonna get to what they mm-hmm. want. And then they build nests. Yeah. And then you get new mice because yeah. they keep hatching or and they will, not and hatching. I guess mice or mammals, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they so. they just give birth. Yeah. But uh but no, I mean I, I would say like bears. I get it. They're big. They're scary. 90% of, of people that go backpacking will never have a problem with a bear. Yeah. I say 90% because there are some that will. Yeah. The black bear, especially, you know, yeah, they're especially usually in, skittish. Especially in Kentucky. They're basically yeah. dogs. But I did see a video the other day of this giant black bear, so fat, walking around Gatlinburg. Now, Tennessee's I mean, different. In the dumpsters, dude. It was dumpster diving. This sucker looked like it was 800 pounds. Tennessee fat. black bears. Tennessee black bears in the Smokies. Mm-hmm. Not te- they're not Kentucky black bears. We've seen three or four just driving through Cades Cove. Just yeah. on that like, little loop that you can do. And a lot of them aren't afraid of humans. No. Because people feed them or they're just desensitized. They get in the trash. Which people don't realize how dangerous that is for the animal. Yeah. That animal at some point will get aggressive because it's still wanting that food and mm-hmm. then people aren't feeding it or whatever. And well, then it has it to be down. euthanized. Yeah. Or relocated, hopefully. But a lot of times, especially if it's a danger to people. Yeah. yeah. I, I think one of the best defenses that you can have against this is knowing how to store your food, but not just store it, but to remove scents from your food. Yeah. How do you um, do that? I know that I, I personally, I've never had a problem with animals getting into my food ever. Mm-hmm. And I am rare. I've been out a lot. And I've, I've had heart, I've never had it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I use are the scent free bags that you can buy to put your food in inside of your uh, bear bag. So I'll, I've got one that's, I forget how many gallons the bag is, but it's a scent free bag. I can put all my, I, I put all my day's food in one like gallon Ziploc. Mm-hmm. So I'll have like, say I'm going out for three days, I'll have three gallon Ziplocs. Well, I'll take all three of those and put them in the scent free bag. So already they're in a Ziploc that's going to block some of the scent anyways. Mm-hmm. Then I put them in a scent-free bag, which should block almost all of it. Then I put that inside of a bear bag. I just, I'm not sold on the scent. I just feel like the scent is so powerful that me like touching stuff and then touching the bag. I know it's better than it just like all just being thrown into a bear bag and then just be sitting in there. The scent has to be muted somewhat yeah. from the precautions you're taking. I just I wonder if we could measure. Have you see. used a scent free bag? No, because I I like I said I'm just not. I don't. 
I just can't buy that it makes that much of a difference. So I don't buy the bag. That's fair. All yeah. I know is that it's worked for me. Yeah, but but I do the same thing without scent free. Now there has been one time that I hung my food bag and then like a squirrel or something chewed up the outside bag. Rodents didn't get in. Yeah, but still like chewed apart the strings and stuff and the top part of the bag. Yeah. So I don't know, but that might not have happened if I had used the precautions that you. Well, used. and that's what I said. Anything you can do to remove scent. Yeah. Now I'm not gonna lie to you. When I did the shell toy trace, I never hung my bear bag. Yeah. Not one time. What I did instead was I was on a tent that entire trip. Mm-hmm. Well, we were doing 15 to 20 miles a day. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like we were hiking seven or eight miles. We were hiking full days, mm-hmm. tired at the end of the day, feet are sore, our feet are tired, feet are sore. Socks smell awful. <laughs> Delicious socks. So I would take my nasty shirt that I wore that day that was covered in sweat and smelled terrible and my socks, and I would lay them over my bear bag mm-hmm. in the tent. Do you think they smell right through it? I never had a problem with it. I'm not saying to do this, folks. Okay, understand. Mm, this is just lived experience. This is just what I did, you know? Mm. But I never had a problem. Yeah. Never my, even had a sniff. I think the number one thing, depending on where you're at, is the rodents, honestly. Yeah. I think that yeah. most bigger things, they smell you and they don't want to mess with you. Right. It's like a foreign thing to them. But I think that the mice and stuff, if if you were like if you could survey all of the lost food and damage that's ever happened backpacking and camping, it's almost all rodents. Yeah, almost all of it. Because I'm mean, like I said, out out west you got you got porcupines, you got uh, marmots. Here we've got squirrels, we've got chipmunks, we've got mice. Mm-hmm. Um, the Appalachian Trail is notorious for the mice that get into the shelters. Yeah, they've woken me. They they have awoken me at night running across my sleeping bag. Yeah. I mean, they're just all over the place. Now, what about the coyotes? Do you think the people should be scared of coyotes whenever they're out in the woods? Now, coyotes don't like humans. If they smell you a know. human, they stay away. I heard them. I hear them howling. You know, I'll hear them at the Red of the Gorge all the time, barking or whatever. Yeah, but I never had them get so close to me that I felt like I was in danger. No, not I, even like within eyesight. Typically, I don't know anything about wolves because mm-hmm. we just don't have those here. Yeah. But coyotes, I've just learned that if you're human, they kind of they, they know humans want to kill them. Yeah. Because I, I don't know what it's like in other states, but in the state of Kentucky, there is no ban of any kind on killing coyotes. Yeah, I think you can kill as much as you want. There yeah. may be seasons that you can trap them and kill mm-hmm. them. I don't know. I don't know. But I just know there's no limit on how many you can you can take. What a weird dog that we can all kill. Yeah. Very odd, huh? Well, the problem is what they do to livestock and, and yeah. what they do to property and... Um, their 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 part in the food chain isn't necessarily a good part of the food chain. It's the best way yeah. to put it. You know, in Australia, you know what they they uh, kill. They introduced house cats, and now they have all these feral house cats. Have you heard about this? No. Yeah, you should look it up, dude. There's all these <laughs> feral house cats. Well, they're apparently look into it. Make sure I'm, I'm not. I'm uh, getting online right now. <laughs> make sure I'm not misinforming you, but I'm pretty sure that they had a population of some kind of rodent or something that uh, was getting in the way, and now they hunt. They're not house cats anymore. They're feral. But you just type in like feral cats Australia hunting or something like that, and I guarantee you, you can find something. Australia's cats kill 2 billion animals annually. Hmm. Wow. I, th- I, I thought that they brought in... They this brought is from in. last week. 
I thought that they had a problem with something, so they brought them in, and then the unintended consequence was an explosion of feral cats. Okay, this is this is literally right now from the Australian government, and this was out last Tuesday. Okay. Feral cats threaten the survival of over 100 native species in Australia. They have caused the extinction of some ground-dwelling birds and small to medium-sized mammals. They are a major cause of decline for many land-based endangered animals such as the bilby, bandicoot, betong, and numbat. Many native animals are struggling to survive, so reducing the number killed by this introduced predator will allow their populations to grow. Feral cats carry infectious diseases and can be transmitted to native animals, domestic livestock, and humans. Look at that. Feral cat task force. Oh, my gosh. They have a whole task force dedicated to them. De- a national declaration. Feral cats as pests. I think that they, like, bow hunt them, dude. Controlling feral cats. See how it says control them. Does it say hit them with a bat? Control tools available for feral cats for feral cats are shooting, trapping, fencing, baiting, and grooming Oh, trapping. batting. That, I thought it said batting. It was baiting. Baiting. I just imagine a baseball bat, and you're like out, <laughs> like zombie mode. I don't think they'll be against that either. Yeah, I don't know, dude. That seems like a pretty uh, pretty terrible way to kill cats. I can't imagine that. It makes me, ugh. Gives me the heebie-jeebies. But you know, I've that. told people for years, cats only have one thing in mind when they're around humans. Yeah. How am I going to eat you? Yeah, cats will eat you. Dogs will eat you too, but I think it takes a long time before they'll eat you. I think I think cats are always thinking it. Yeah, it's in the back of their mind. They're like they think I'm domesticated. <laughs> Once I figure out I'm eating them, like that's what I think cats are doing at all times. Yeah. Okay, so I want to add a fear. All right, yeah, let's wrap. Okay, so so last one we did here was wild animals. I want to say that the final fear, and this is one I've heard a lot of people talk about, is gear failure. Oh yeah, a lot of people like will take. Extra guy line, extra rope, uh, splints for their tents, extra poles, extra... I mean, they will load up on failure gear. Mm, They do the bushcraft style. Three is two, two is one, one is nine. Sure, yeah. And what ends up happening is they end up adding pounds of weight to their gear that maybe isn't necessary. Mm -hmm. But it's all because of their fear of gear failure. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about that? Well, I think that... You had to like, uh, you have to weigh both sides. And then if there's something that you think may, maybe it's going to fail, either repair it before your next trip or do take the necessary precaution. There's nothing wrong with having a little duct tape or something like that. No, there's nothing wrong with it at all. But I'm not bringing some stuff you can do from the woods. You know, the woods gives you a lot. So if you're backpacking in places like we go, if you forget a tent stake, and you have a non-freestanding tent, well, you need those stakes to stake it down. So you can make one. You know, you yeah, if you've got your, a knife with you. Yeah, cut yeah. your stick and, you know, knock it into the ground, you're good to go. You got your tent stake yeah. makeshift. Well, and you can you can get Dyneema patches and, and polyester and, and nylon mm-hmm. patches, like patching tape that you can use in case, yeah. like, you get a hole in your tent or yeah. whatever. Maybe you want to have a sewing kit, so if your backpack shreds you can at least sew it back together well and a lot of people will just bring a needle but instead of bringing thread they just bring tooth floss mm-hmm. um and that floss you can use to sew things up and because it's wax it kind of seals as it sews as well so it, yeah. it's a, it is water resistant which is what's great about it the the splints for the poles i have one tent that's a c to summit telos tr2 and it came with the splint for the poles and I got to tell you, I have broken a pole while on trail. Yeah. And you got to kind of make do 
with tape or something if you don't have the the right. splint. So right. sometimes it's not the worst thing, but most of the time you're not going to use that yeah. double dose. Well, again, stuff. I think it comes back to preparation too. Like if you know you're going to an area where there's heavy snowfall or lots of wind, mm-hmm. don't take a tent that can't handle that. Yeah, it won't fail if it's not there. You know, take the right kind of tent, take the right kind of gear, take the right kind of equipment. If you know mm-hmm. that uh, you're going to be walking through some horribly rocky, rough terrain, your typical trail runner is probably not the best option for you. You might need to take a boot for that trip or actual yeah. hiking shoes because they can handle the beating of that trip. Mm-hmm. You, know, you just got to know like the gear that you need for what what's appropriate. Yeah. And a lot of times your gear failure is a result of either negligence or like lack of awareness. Like I went out during this polar vortex one year. I remember that. Yeah. Great. Except for my tent poles were stuck together the next morning and we had to build a fire so that I could melt them enough to pull them apart, you know, because it did freezing rain as you were setting up. Correct. Mm -hmm. And then they were frozen totally because it was like 17 degrees or whatever the next morning. And uh, by the way, that's a polar vortex in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, people like, like Wisconsin. Like Michigan, I know, like, I know, we've got people in Minnesota right now just laughing at us in Canada, going, "You guys <laughs> yeah, are such babies when it comes to this stuff." I've been but, shoveling my driveway every day for the last three months. <laughs> you guys are complaining about. <laughs> we start shoveling snow in July, dude. <laughs> so I tell you though, melting the melting the the ice where the poles were stuck together. Worked out great, but the... the now you shock, got hot metal. Now you got hot metal, <laughs> which melted some of the shock cord that holds the poles together. Oh, you know? man. So that's stretchy, right? Yeah. So you take the poles apart, and then you can kind of do the accordion thing, but if one of the strings break, and then your poles go in different directions, if you don't know your tent very well, like that, my tent has three poles, and one of the poles has, like, not only is there three poles, but one of those three poles has two additional poles attached to it through like these swiveling. Right, right, right. So if like, if that was your first time setting that tent up and then one of the strings broke and then you have poles going everywhere, then you're going to be spending a lot of time like figuring out how to rig that tent back up. Yeah. To make it stand. Another reason to go with a hammock. (laughs) Could be. Those poles don't get damaged if they don't exist. I'm just saying, just throwing it out there, folks. But I, I think uh, I think gear failure is a legit fear for a lot of people, and yeah. um, it just comes back down to make sure you've got the right gear for the right trip. Yeah, and uh, it's amazing how much less falls apart when you have the right gear for the right trip. I totally agree. The right trip. So, well, man, here's what I want to do, folks. If you're listening right now on Spotify, I want you to go down and check out our poll because we're going to put a poll in there and we want you to list out which of the fears that we have mentioned is one that you deal with. So please do that after listening to this podcast because we would love to know what fears you all are dealing with when you go out into the backcountry. Jeremiah, if there's one thing I've learned about this, this whole thing that we've talked about these last two weeks. Yes. You're afraid of a lot of stuff. Well, I've grown. I've grown. I'm kidding. Obviously, I'm kidding. I've hiked with Jeremiah. He's not afraid of too much at all, actually. <laughs> just just out to have a good time, man. That's right, man. That's right. And that's what backpacking is. It's a good time. Yeah. Good time with good friends. So for myself and Jeremiah, thank you guys for tuning in to the Backpacking Podcast. We will catch you on the next one. Adios, folks.